Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But he came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come back, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. 
Thanks, Susan, uh, for your ministry of, ministry of the Word through reading it. That's great. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, thanks for being here today. Great to see uh, all of you um, here this morning. Uh, we're, we're in the second of a three-week series on uh, personal evangelism, as you can see there from your worship folder. Uh, and we've said that as a church, it's always been our priority, continues to be our priority, to have a culture of sharing our faith and being hospitable, being, being warm and inviting, especially to people who aren't Christians. Um, and two weeks from today, uh, it's hard to believe, two weeks from today, we'll launch into two services every Sunday. Uh, and so the, the room will feel much bigger, and there'll be a lot of empty space. And so uh, our senior pastor, Drew, said, you know, I feel like this is a good time for us to reorient ourselves. Let's do a few weeks where we go back and rehash things that were integral when we started, but very easily can become less important or just less intentional uh, as we grow as a church. And the further you get into the life of a congregation, the less personal evangelism occurs, uh, sadly, but it's true. And let me say, uh, to reiterate, the goal of two services uh, is not to create space for growth just for the sake of growth. The goal of two services is to create space for growth so that we reach a capacity that we can send out another core group uh, sooner rather than later uh, and plan another church. Uh, Jeff Skipper and the group targeting uh, the southwest portion of our community is the first of what we believe will be many plants uh, that God will provide for the sake of gifting our city with as many churches, as many opportunities for as many people man, woman, and child, to hear the gospel as we can. Uh, In order to make that possible, we have to be a people who love to share the good news, who love to gospel other people, and who love to see the lost become found. Drew talked last week about the fact that one of the major obstacles to the church reaching uh, those outside the church is self-righteousness, a we're right and you're wrong mentality. So in other words, evangelism is not someone saying, hey, I'm right and you're wrong, and I'd like to... uh, get together with you to talk about that, preferably over Facebook, Uh, because I'm too chicken to talk to you in person. Uh, No, I I think and I hope that it's more like befriending uh, as we seek and ask the Holy Spirit himself to change a heart, because we can't. Um, This week, we're going to rewind a few chapters. Last week, we were in the story of Zacchaeus from Luke 19. We're going to rewind a few chapters to Luke 15, a famous chapter in the gospel, Jesus is talking about lostness and foundness again, uh, and yet uh, he, he's, I, I want to look this morning at what happens when the lost are found, and how do we become a church that joins heaven in its partying? Yes, partying. Uh, heaven does party. Uh, why? Because uh, it's a miracle, quite honestly, um, and we'll get to that. But why read the whole chapter? I think understanding the setting that Luke paints, particularly in the first two verses, and I'm sorry for the small uh, font Uh, It's Joe's fault, Um, who does the worship folder. Uh, No, it's just a long chapter, and so I apologize that there's so many words there. But if you look at the first couple of verses, there's a a setting here. It's very critical. Uh, And and plus, the the three stories in the chapter are one parable. Okay? So notice that in verse 3, he told them this parable. It's one right after the other. It's, It's one whole parable in these three stories. 
Um, I wanted to read an explanation to you from a Middle Eastern scholar who talks about a parable, and he says this. I thought this was helpful. A parable is not a delivery system for an idea. It's not like a shell casing that can be discarded once the idea or the shell is fired. Uh, Rather, a parable is a house in which the reader or listener is invited to take up residence. The reader is encouraged to look out on the world from the point of view of the story. And so just as a house has a variety of rooms and windows, so a parable may have one primary idea with a lot of other secondary ideas in it. And that's what you see in Luke 15. He is going after, he is, that is Jesus, is going after a very specific group of people. The Pharisees and the scribes have been watching him for months. And the charge that they make really epitomizes their hatred for him. And so he invites them into his house, into his world as he begins to tell these stories. The, the lowest of the low, in terms of moral character, were drawing near to Jesus, verse 1. The tax collectors and the sinners, those were labels. They encompassed a lot of different people. And for the Pharisees and the scribes, it wasn't just that they were drawing near. It was that he was welcoming them. He was saying, yes, please come, right? He wasn't just receiving them. What Luke actually says in Greek there is he's welcoming them into fellowship. In other words, he's eating with them, which in the Middle East is a big deal because you don't befriend and eat with unclean and unrighteous people if you want to stay clean and righteous, right? So we're going to take a look at, in your worship folder at the three things there in the outline. Joyless grumbling, all right? Why do these people react the way that they do? Secondly, how... Different they are from the characters in the parable who are full of joy, who are joyfully celebrating. And then thirdly, how does the humility the gospel brings to us provide the motivation for us to party like heaven does when the lost are found? Who in your life do you long to be found? And are you going to celebrate? Are you going to throw a party when they come to faith? It's an interesting idea. Uh, you know, usually we, we, we sort of pray for them and it's a very somber thing. Uh, but how about we party? How about we celebrate when that happens? So first, let's, let's look at the Pharisees and the scribes. Why does Jesus so often get this reaction from the religious leaders? The, the Gospels con- consistently describe him as being surrounded by the lame, uh, the crippled, uh, prostitutes, tax collectors. That is, everyone that in first century Jewish society were considered unclean, were considered disobedient to the law, not worth your time. The, the reality was they had ruined their record through their behavior, and so they had forfeited their right to be a part of the community of faith. In fact, the most religious people of Jesus' day only knew one way to relate to God, and this is part of the problem and part of the reason that they react the way they do. They only knew how to relate to God on the basis of merit. Their anger and their grumbling stems from their assessment of the moral standing of the most immoral people around them. And so those most attracted to Jesus' ministry just happened to be guilty of the most law-breaking. Their law-breaking was very public. It was out in the open. Everybody knew about it. And in contrast, the religious leaders worked very hard to keep the law and observe very high moral standards, which they did out in the open, out in public, for everybody to see. To contrast themselves, right? Part of staying righteous and moral was staying clean, but in order to stay clean, as I mentioned a minute ago, and obviously I'm mentioning it again, so it's important, you had to avoid certain people and objects, of course. 
Their charge of Jesus is that he receives sinners and eats with them. Not only does he converse, he shares meals. And so in doing that with these unclean people, they've judged him unclean and they grumble. But they grumble from a distance. Look at verse 1. Specifically, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing where? Near to hear him. They were coming close. And so while sinners draw near to Jesus, the righteous remain aloof. They refuse to enter into the fellowship that he is creating. And that's significant. It'll become more significant a little bit later, even through this uh, chapter. So sinners draw near, righteous remain aloof. See, when you relate to God on the basis of merit, you don't rejoice and you can't accept when someone's welcomed by him who doesn't deserve it. Uh, the, the, the church can become a place like this. Churches can be, and often are, full of moral judgments and merit assessments. And so the question for us becomes, do we welcome public sinners, very public sinners, in 2015? Uh, in our day and time, it's people like the divorced, the struggling homosexual, the recovering cocaine addict, the felon who just got released from uh, being incarcerated, Uh, The father, who just can't stop looking at pornography. Do we welcome those people? Right? Um, The Pharisees had this uh, problem of putting moral pass-fail labels on everybody. They stamped you. Pass-fail, pass-fail. Depending on what moral uh, record, what moral behavior you had or hadn't kept in your life. And so if you had a fail label on your life, you were a lost cause as far as they were concerned. Now, how does Jesus go after this mentality, specifically in the parable? We'll get to verses 4 through 24 in a minute. Uh, Those are Jesus' explanation for why he sits and eats with sinners, why he pursues them. But, specifically verses 25 to 32, okay, Uh, so if you look down there at the bottom or if you're following along in your Bible, go down to verses 25 to 32, They are Jesus' pursuit of the Pharisees and scribes. It is amazing that in this chapter and throughout his ministry, Jesus pursues, I mean intentionally pursues, the irreligious and the religious, the sinners and the righteous. It's not like he spends all his time on the righteous, or excuse me, on the sinners, and tells the righteous they can go flip sand. I don't have any time for them. He goes after the sinner. And he's going after the righteous. It's absolutely brilliant, amazing, glorious. He goes to the heart of their joyless grumbling. These verses, they're very famous. And uh, if you have, um, even if you've not read the Bible before, you're new to the Bible or Christianity, you've probably heard the story of the prodigal son. Because he's the famous part. But don't forget about the older son. He's the brother who is returned uh, of this younger son who's returned humiliated and broken only to be met with a celebration and restoration to the family and the community but here's the older son now the older son was in the field the similarities between the older son and the pharisees are pretty amazing both stand aloof both refuse to enter into the fellowship that celebrates the lost being found they just can't do it The younger son, like the sinners surrounding Jesus, has forfeited his rights. He's a lawbreaker, plain and simple. And that's the way the older son views him. The Pharisees grumble. The older son is angry. 
Both relate to the Father. Both relate to God on the basis of merit. Verse 29. uh, Look, I've been slaving for you all these many years. I never disobeyed you one time. And yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Uh, When when Susan was reading that, it kind of shifted to, I don't know, nine, ten-year-old type of, you know, voice, because that's what he was acting like, right? Both lack joy. The Pharisee's the older brother, because at the end of the day, you can't rejoice at the lost being found unless you believe you're lost and need to be found, right? The older son pleaded his, unwor- his, his worthiness, his obedience to the father. He is righteously demanding the honor he's due in his mind, and yet in reality, he's full of pride Bitterness, sarcasm, it's one of my favorites, personally. I love sarcasm. I mean, I, but, but you got to know, I was undone this week reading particularly 25 to 32. The rest, of the, the rest of the chapter is easy. Great, yes, I love that about Jesus. But 25 to 32, oh gosh. I mean, I, it was awful. Because you see, joyless grumbling is rooted in a heart that isn't convinced of God's fatherly goodness. It slaves away and it demands rewards. And Jesus ends the parable by looking the Pharisees in the face. This is marvelous. He's looking them in the face and he says to them, I'm celebrating the lost being found. Will you come join me? And the story ends with the older son refusing to enter into the joy of his father. Jesus leaves the ball in their court. And, And just like the father in the story, he's entreating them. Verse 28. He was angry and refused to go in. His father comes out and entreats him. And through this parable, Jesus is entreating the righteous. He's begging them, please come join me. And, and, and if you feel yourself saying, like I did oftentimes the last few days, you know, I got a lot in common with the Pharisees. Um, hearing the father begin the sentence with the word son. Man, that'll drain your heart of the slave mentality like nothing else. It'll convince you of his goodness because he's calling you son. It will eradicate joyless grumbling. You're mine. All I have is yours. It'll make you more like the characters that we meet uh, in this parable, the shepherd and the woman and the father. And so let's, let's look at them uh, for a couple of minutes here. Jesus uses the parable to answer the Pharisees. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's like he's saying in verse 3, you guys are right. I do welcome and eat with sinners. And here's why. Because just like a shepherd searching, just like the woman searching, like the father longing and waiting, Jesus Christ says, I'm here to look for and find the lost. Now, why is there such an intensity? It kind of struck me uh, reading this uh, several times. Why is there such an intensity to the emotional response, uh, the, the amount of joy uh, of these characters when they find what they lost. Why do they get so excited? And I think it's fair to say that the intensity and amount of joy is directly proportional to the value of what was lost, right? What is of little value produces little joy. What's of great value produces great joy, right? Uh, when you lose a sock out of a pair Aside from just being absolutely, I mean, just so frustrated. I don't speak from experience at all. I, I, talking about other people I've met who share that with me. 
when you lose one sock out of a pair, you're pleasantly surprised when you find the other one, right? Oh, great, there it is, right? I found it. When you lose the remote for a couple of days, you're grateful when it turns up so that you can be lazy again. You don't have to get up and manually. And TVs nowadays, they don't even have buttons on them, right? But, for example, when my son and I had Lincoln, our dog, uh, out at Catfish Creek Preserve, which is out here in Haines City, last year, and he ran into a thicket of palmettos because we had him off the leash, contrary to what the big sign at the front said to do. Um, he ran into a thicket of palmettos. He didn't come out for 10 or 15 minutes. Now, he emerged a little ways down the path, you know, panting away. What are you guys doing? Come on, let's go. You're absolutely overjoyed to find him, right? I could come up with a story about how we lost one of our kids one time, but I couldn't think of one, so I went with the dog, right? (laughs) But... If those of you who have pets and dogs, they're valuable too, you know. But just to, just to illustrate the, the, the extreme from, from one end, it's not, it's not that important to, it's very important, right? For the next 30 minutes, Ethan and I are talking about what if, what if, what would we have done? What would we have done? Can you imagine, right? Because it's significant. And part of Jesus' point is the sheep and the coin and the sons are worth searching for. So when they're found, the response isn't just, ah, that was a close one. No, it's, woohoo! let's throw a party. I want the whole community around me to celebrate. I found my sheep. He doesn't just go home and rejoice and keep it to himself. He says, friends, come, let's celebrate. I found the sheep that was lost. The woman, she found one of what was presumably, in terms of the context here, maybe her, her, um, her inheritance, or she was an older woman, and this, this was all the money she had, and so she lost one of her ten coins, and ten was all she had. So can you imagine how excited she was? Oh, I've still got my full life savings. Let me call my friends together. One application of this would be when the children of our church complete the communicants class and they're interviewed for membership, culminating in their standing up here before the faith community, and they declare their faith in Jesus, what they do when they take the five membership vows, let's have a party next door when they're done. Right? Let's celebrate. Sinners repenting. The lost being found. So if heaven celebrates like Jesus says, then obviously lost humanity must be of great value to him. Uh, it's, it's, more, it's acting more like I did when Kelvin Benjamin caught that winning touchdown pass against Auburn a couple of years ago. Right? I, it wasn't like I sat on the couch. Go nose. I mean, no, I, I leaped up. Ethan had fallen asleep on the chair and had a heart attack because we were making so much noise. Or maybe you've seen a video of me during a, a U.S. World Cup match that my daughter took, um, which she spread on social media. I got really excited, you know, when we would score a goal. But I usually don't get that excited when I hear of someone coming to faith in Jesus. Why is that? A lost soul being found by their maker And the truth is because sometimes I'm not sure God knows what he's doing. He's not picking the right candidates. (laughs) And I got to tell you, that's pretty evil. And so even as I wrote this, I thought, pray for me. Please pray for me. That's awful. It was. It is. But what is it about repentance specifically? Notice in verse 7 and verse 10, what heaven rejoices over is a sinner who repents. 
right? What is it about that? Well, I think two things. First, repentance is an absolute reversal of status. It's a complete and total reversal of status. What was lost is found. An orphan becomes a son. The dead is now alive. An enemy becomes a child. Do you realize how amazing that is? It's a miracle. Heaven rejoices when enemies become children. Heaven applauds when a sinner says, I'm in need of a savior. I can't fix myself. I'm so broken. I want to stop trying. Jesus, please help. Come and save me. They're cheering when sinners say that. That's what he means when he says the younger son, in verse 17, came to himself. That's where repentance begins. That's the starting point. And when the seeking savior meets a repentant rebel, new birth happens. And just like the celebration that surrounds a newborn, an enemy becoming a child elicits joy in the throne room of heaven. And Jesus gives us a picture of that. The last two verses of, um, of the, the, uh, the younger son coming home, verses 22, 23, and 24, are a picture of such a celebration. And I'm convinced that's what and why he was telling the Pharisees and went into that much detail with respect to the celebration because he wanted them to see... We are so excited when younger sons return, when sinners repent. But repentance isn't just a reversal of status. I think the other thing is it's a renewal of purpose. You you become what you were made to be. The sheep was designed to be in the flock, not to exist on on his own, because staying lost would inevitably have meant death. The coin was made to be put to use, to purchase goods and services, not lie... uh, lost in the dust of the house. And the son, well, the son wasn't designed to lie in the slop with the pigs. His value and worth were far greater than that. He was, he was designed to flourish and be productive in his family and in his community. He, he was made to serve his father as a son, not so that he could earn a spot as a son. You see, joyful celebration as opposed to joyless grumbling, is rooted in a heart full of gratitude that relates to God on the basis of mercy, not merit. And as a result, sonship comes, not slavery. The found celebrate the lost because they know what it's like to be lost. The shepherd didn't have to explain to his neighbors why he was happy when he found his sheep. They didn't ask him. It made sense to them. The woman didn't have to argue to convince her friends that they should rejoice with her. It made sense to them why she was so excited. But the father has to go outside the party and defend his joy to his older son. What is obvious to him is completely lost on the older son. And what's obvious to Jesus makes no sense to the religious. For the older son and most religious people, you don't celebrate rebels, you punish them. The reason justice and fairness trump mercy is because a religious person doesn't think they're a rebel. For them... A person obeys in order to earn a status with God. To be given status after you've already rebelled is wrong. It's unfair. It's unjust. The older son says, all these years I've never disobeyed you. Was that true? Do you honestly think that was true? Bold-faced lie right to his father's face, right? He didn't think he was a sinner. And it left him to be self-righteous and judgmental and angry. It choked out joy. He really was a rebel. But he didn't think so. And just like him, unless you're certain of your rebellion, you won't repent. And it's only repentant sinners who celebrate and are celebrated in heaven. And so how, 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 do, we, how do we party like that? How do we become a church, P 
people who, who do that. Heaven will be full of enemies who've been made into children. You realize that? Full of enemies who've been made into children. Everyone in heaven was once an enemy of God, and now they're a child. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity have been conspiring. How can we make more enemies into children? What an amazing thing. It'll be full of slaves who become sons. It'll be full of the lost who've been found. But the status change isn't due to their work or merit. It's due to one thing. The search and the sacrifice of the one who looked for them. Let me say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure, maybe you've been in church for a long time, but you find yourself in your experience of church people, or your experience personally has been joyless grumbling, particularly when you see undeserving people get celebrated or welcomed. I want you to hear those words of the Father. Son, all that is mine is yours. Right? Hearing our Heavenly Father begin his sentence with the word son, as I said earlier, drains slave mentality. It will convince you of his goodness. It was costly for the shepherd and for the woman and for the father to seek what they had lost. But Jesus saves the most graphic picture of this for the last story where the father runs out to meet his son. That was public shame he was enduring as he ran. Old men in that time never ran. But not only that, when he leaves his party to go out and entreat the older son to come in and join them, he shames himself again. You didn't throw a party and have a bunch of guests around and walk out. Jesus himself received public shame on the cross as he bore our curse, as our sin was laid on him, as we read earlier from Isaiah. It cost him his very life. His seeking of us led him to death in order to save us. And so repentance is simply the acceptance of being found. It's, it's not a work which earns our rescue. The sinner accepts being found. The sinner rejoices at the diligent effort of the great shepherd. Jesus Christ himself, because they know that to be lost is to be dead and to be found is to be alive in him, because of him. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is of the Lord alone, and that's why repentance produces humility. And so let me speak as we finish to both sets of people here, Christians. You're here, you consider yourself a Christian. The humility and joy of knowing you've been found when you weren't looking when you didn't even know you were lost, has that produced a desire to go and look for people? To go after them? To search for them? Are, are you longing for them to come to repentance so you can throw a party? Do, do you know that in AA, when somebody gets initiated into AA and then they go back each week and they, they say, you know, hi, my name's so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic and I've been clean for three weeks. What does the group do? They all cheer. They go crazy. If you're one person coming into the community and the community recognizes you were lost and now you're found, they celebrate. It's a big deal. But in order to do that, in order to celebrate when the lost are found, we have to go seeking them. His seeking of us is the motivation for us to go seek too. But let me speak to the non-Christians in the room as well. Not wanting to be found, wandering aimlessly, Doing life on your own terms never ends well. Just ask the younger son, right? But not thinking you need to be found, that life is pretty manageable and God will see your good management and reward you, that won't end well either. Just look at the older son. 
if, if you've been going your own way or you're, you're, you're sort of trying to toe the line and live a moral good life, neither one of those end well. Let me entreat you this morning. Look at the joy of heaven over your repentance because of the value heaven places on you and come home. The Father, just like in the parable, the Father's waiting. He, he loves to turn enemies into children. He loves to take slaves and make them sons. And then, and then, he stands ready to throw you a party. So let's make it our mission to share that kind of a news. Let's make it our mission to be that kind of a people who, when the lost are found, let's rejoice. Let's be known in our city, in our area, as a church that does that. And lo and behold, you you might see more lost becoming found. Uh, Let's pray that God would do that work. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and finding us when we were lost and didn't know it. Uh, thank you for, for coming and uh, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we pray that uh, you would make us uh, incredibly humble as a result of knowing that salvation is by grace. It's of you. Uh, it's, it's what you've done for us, not what we do for ourselves. Help us to repent and help us to run. Run as fast as we can into your arms. You're waiting You're longing for our return uh, so that you can throw a party for us. And may that motivate us to go out and seek and rejoice when the lost are found and throw parties for them too. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Uh, This benediction is a promise that as you go, God goes with you. Uh, And so whatever it is that you're facing, uh, whatever situations, trials, Whoever's out there that's lost that you're looking to find or asking God to help you to find them, to bring them in, he goes with you. Uh, His presence, his power, uh, his purpose goes with you. Uh, And so as you go, receive this and may it it enter your heart and may by faith you walk from here knowing these words are true uh, if you're in Christ Jesus. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.